The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. Like the pine trees lining the winding road, I've got a name. I've got a name. All right, hello everyone. Welcome to the Movie Club Podcast, episode number seven. Uh, this month, uh, we're looking at two movies once again, um, starting with The Ice Storm, directed by Ang Lee, and uh, also Crazy, a Canadian film directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. Uh, and uh, once again, it's the, the usual suspects here with us, uh, sitting around to discuss these films. Of course, there is one person missing at the moment who may show up in just a bit. But um, I guess we can uh, all introduce ourselves. Uh, I'm Sean from FilmJunk.com. I'm Kurt from Twitch Film and Row 3. I'm Jay from the documentary blog in Film Junk. And I'm Marina from Row 3. And Andrew is supposed to be here. Uh, apparently he's having some internet connection troubles. So we don't know if he's going to show up or not. But uh, we'll add him to the conversation as soon as he does. Um, and, uh, so I guess, uh, the, the ice storm was the, the top vote getter, uh, from the month previous and crazy was kind of the one that we chose on our own to, uh, to work together with this. And I guess the common theme, if there is one, they're both kind of set in the seventies, uh, and they're both, you know, family oriented dramas. Um, but, uh, so I guess we'll start with the ice storm. Now this is uh, this came out in 1997, and of course Ang Lee. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily his his most well known film. I, I think you know Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is is definitely up there for him. He of course did Hulk was his big uh, mainstream blockbuster, and uh, you know he's done plenty of other stuff. But and to be honest with you, I hadn't even really I've, I'd heard the name, didn't really even know anything about the Ice Storm prior to. Uh, sitting down to watch it for this. So uh, where did uh, you guys all kind of encounter this for the first time? Uh, I managed to catch it in the cinema when it played in, I, I think it was, you said, 97. Um, and it was then and is now my favorite Ang Lee film, um, just because it has such a great collection of characters and it has such a sad tone. It's actually, in my opinion, one of the, more melancholy films made in the 1990s and it's i think it was ignored upon release but uh i haven't i i I liked it a lot and i was really really happy to see last year that uh criterion gave it a like a full release package so it was a pleasure it was a film i'd revisited on the previous dvd incarnation but it was a real pleasure to revisit it again on this one okay uh jay anything I hadn't seen it uh, previous to... Actually, I I watched it before we chose this, but I hadn't seen it previous to the the Criterion uh, re-release. But I had always seen the DVD in bargain bins everywhere. And for some reason, um, the the cast appealed to me. Um, Ang Lee... I wouldn't say I'm I'm a, a massive fan of his because all I've seen really of his is this uh, Hulk 
and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I didn't. I don't really like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Hulk. I, I thought was all right, but um, so I never really bothered to pick it up. But um, <clears throat> I guess the Criterion uh, package pushed me that extra step, as it usually does. It just takes some cool. DVD artwork to to (laughs) drop $35, but, um, so yeah, I, I hadn't seen it, uh, previous to, I guess this year. Marina. And I'd always heard really good things about it, but I'd never seen it. And, uh, at some point, maybe five or six years ago, I caught up with it and I really enjoyed it. I haven't touched base with it since until I watched it for, uh, the recording, but it's a good film. Yeah, um, you know, for me, it's, uh, you know, the cast I found very surprising. Again, not really having known anything about it prior to sitting down to watch it just, you know, this year. Uh, it's pretty crazy, the the people that are in it. Because, you know, at the time they were in it, they weren't all necessarily the stars that they are now. I mean, you've yeah. got Christina Ricci, Elijah Wood, uh, Tobey Maguire, which totally messed me up because I always get Elijah Wood and Tobey Maguire mixed up and to have both of them in the same film blew my mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, you've also got Kevin Kline, uh, Sigourney Weaver, and uh, just a lot of other... Oh, well, Katie Holmes is in it as well, which is I was surprised to see her. Um, which is funny because aren't she and Tobey Maguire in Wonder Boys together? Yep. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, yeah, I mean, even it's, you mentioned that in the nineties there, you know, there weren't movies like this really being made. Like it kind of in tone reminds me of, um, you know, like election or, well, little children, uh, kind of, you know, same kind of vibe and that kind of stuff. I don't know. It's just feels to me when I think of the nineties, I don't really think of these kinds of movies, but, um, I guess maybe that's one of the reasons why it kind of went under the radar for a while. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, where do you guys want to start with the discussion here? Um, is there, uh, I guess, a particular performance that stood out for you or anything like that? Well, for me, the movie is centered around the, uh, although she, everyone has a, a, a large chunk, but the Christina Ricci performance um, in the movie is one that always jumps out at me when I watch it. And her relationship to... Uh, to Joan Allen that they're sort of they're in the same house together but they're there's there barely just seems to be uh, a relationship actually all that's kind of describes all of the characters in both households is that the none of the relationships seem to be locked down very well everyone is just sort of exists in the same space but my favorite scene in the entire film is uh there's one scene where Kevin Klein uh, was supposed to have a tryst with Sigourney Weaver's character, but she goes off to run some errands and leaves him sitting there. And as he's waiting for her and realizing that she's not coming back, he goes downstairs and finds his what, 13-year-old daughter with the 11-year-old um, son, uh, potentially in the middle of uh, you know groping or feeling each other up or whatever and he takes her home and the the walk home is uh such a great scene because he's mad but at the same time he caught it before anything really happened and he trusts his daughter to some extent and so he gives her a little bit of slack but then she asks 
he asks to carry her or she asks to carry him. I, I don't recall the, who actually makes the connection, but it's one of the few, other than the closing scene of the film, it's one of the few really warm emotional connections when he picks her up and, and basically carries her so that she doesn't um, you know, get any colder all along the forest path and into the houses. It's a very, most of the emotions in the movie are pretty, disjointed or people are focused on other things or the the sexual confusion weighs so heavily over this movie it seems to blot out any real emotional connections and then when he does actually make a connection with his daughter um it's a very powerful moment in the movie yeah and i think um you pretty much you know it seems like that's you've nailed you know kind of the theme of the movie i mean it's called the ice storm. There's all kinds of ice imagery and stuff, and I think that's sort of the the message that they're they're getting across, or at least the portrait that they're painting of these uh, this middle class family, and um, just that you know nobody's really relating to each other, and everybody's concerned about themselves. And um, but uh, out of curiosity, has anybody read the book? Because I guess this is based on a novel by Rick Moody. No, I haven't. I've read a collection of his short stories, Demonology, but I've never actually read the um, the novel. I am certain, I believe, if you read the essay in the Criterion uh, booklet, um, it, it makes a number of mentions that the Fantastic Four theme is very um, prevalent in the novel. In, in fact, even much more so than it is. It just bookends the, uh, the movie. Um, but uh no I, I i do like moody but i've never read the book either have i no neither have i but uh yeah the comic book thing was kind of interesting i mean um when it started and it kind of opens with that um that bit of uh voiceover and he's he's reading the the comic on the the train or whatever and um i kind of thought well you know what the heck is this movie even about like where's this going to go and then you know you kind of forget about it and then you know it was pretty cool how they brought it back in at the end, I mean, you don't see that kind of thing with a with a comic book, and you know, you've got this sort of like art house drama, and then all of a sudden they're they're using the comic book as a metaphor for what's going on. I thought that was pretty cool. Well, the beauty of it is too is that this movie, using that comic book metaphor, predates the modern all of the modern comic book adaptations, and for one bizarre reason or another most of the actors in the film including the director all fell into comic book or comic book-esque franchises like Tobey Maguire became Spider-Man Elijah Wood became Frodo which isn't technically a comic book but the way the movies are constructed it might as well be Katie Holmes was in the Batman film Ang Lee directed Hulk um Christine, Christina Ricci has now been in Speed Racer oh there you go Kevin mm-hmm. so. Klein was in Dave <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> but I just, I, yeah, that, that, I think that the Fantastic Four elements actually a thousand times better for the 10 minutes it is in this movie than either the Roger Corman or um, uh, the two recent kids films that they've made with the source material. It seems that this film or Rick Moody or James Shamus or Ang Lee's regular screenwriter seems to understand the Fantastic Four a heck of a lot better than uh, any of the people that were making popcorn films out of it. Well, it's almost like that's the only serious way you could approach the Fantastic Four material is by having it being read by someone in a serious movie kind of thing. Like, 
I mean, that, not to go off into the Fantastic Four, but uh, I, I, I did like how they uh, made the characters in the Fantastic Four uh, seem much deeper than they probably really are, which I, I think is the case for most of the Marvel stuff, that I, I think people put a lot more stock into them than the uh, people who originally wrote them intended. Um, but yeah, it was the perfect kind of... Uh, uh, base for for this story and i i didn't find it uh pretentious at all i mean i i thought it worked out well and the fact that i guess it was based in the the story of the movie uh aside from the fact that toby Maguire, i didn't totally buy that his character is always carrying a fantastic four comic book around with him but i guess for the long subway ride to, into the city maybe that's his choice of uh Reading. Well, it's fair to say the movie takes place only over three days. The entire movie takes place over just the 1973 Thanksgiving long weekend. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, here's another thing I was kind of wondering about, and you, you mentioned, Kurt, that this has become your favorite Ang Lee film. And, you know, I'm not uh, all that familiar with his other stuff either, but, you know, I've always kind of associated with him with these kind of... Um, very sentimental, um, heartfelt movies. And, and this movie certainly has like some, some sentimental moments, but I think overall it, it, I think I was surprised by how much this is, you know, a movie about the opposite, about people just being very cold to one another and and that kind of thing. And, um, how does this, how do you think this compares with some of the other movies he's done? Well, if you watch his Taiwanese stuff, uh, particularly Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is a fantastic movie, um, yeah, they're very warm films. Um, I think Sense and Sensibility was more of a work-for-hire, kind of it was his English-language crossover. I, I haven't seen it in so long, I can't really comment on it. And, uh, I mean, even Ride with the Devil, which is another film that's begging to be rediscovered, like The Ice Storm, it's probably even less known um than the ice storm and he made it a couple years after it is reasonably upbeat uh as well i i the, the the reason why the ice storm always resonates with me is one the use of that flute wind instrument score with the um ice all, all the ice imagery and the fact that it's you know, it's it's a sad, depressing movie during the Thanksgiving weekend, which in fa- in movies in general, in independent American movies, Thanksgiving is usually um, used as a source of bile-inducing, family dysfunctional comedy satire. I generally hate those movies. So the, they play this one seriously enough, and you connect with, or I connect with the movie seriously enough that uh yeah like like jay said there's no sense of pretentiousness in the film for all of its very brooding serious melancholic if you will tone it it never feels like they're ramming artiness or 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 they're look at how clever we are with inserting all these 70s shows and nixon on the tv and having christina ricci wear the nixon mask and all the sort of 70s brands that you see scattered around the movie none of that feels forced on you it's it's all you know maybe it's overkill in a way but it's carried off with a fair bit of grace 
it doesn't irk me. It, 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 if it's such a fine line, those things can so often irk me in in films. And in this movie, the way they ram so much seventies stuff into the film without it being cloying or cute. It's not like Happy Days or or some obvious nostalgia piece. It, it totally meshes with the drama the case in point is another christina ricci scene which i love in the film is when the family sits down to say grace and uh um christina ricci is a bit of a news junkie and and a bit of a um provocateur amongst the family with uh, social issues uses grace as a as a way to get snippy at uh the way the united states is in vietnam it's just uh um Again, it, it's not overbearing. It's it's actually a very funny and charming and endearing scene. Well, I think that <clears throat> worked for me because it came out of the 13 or whatever year old girl's mouth rather than the parents. If it was the parents commenting on the situation in Vietnam, it would seem like they're trying to touch on that that time. But with it coming out of the kid's mouth, it's almost like it's just a kid being um, overly... Uh, trying to be an adult and she's just like spouting out these political rants at kind of inappropriate times because she's a kid and she's rebellious and she's just using this as a way to piss off her parents rather than to comment on this is the 70s you know which is great because that Mm -hmm. is her character arc in the in the film is that she is well, she the sexual thing, which is the bulk of the movie. Her in particular is is experimenting sexually and playing mind games between the two neighbors' brothers. That is way beyond her years, uh, and uh, she doesn't really even know what she's doing. <laughs> but she wants to be. It's at that fragile time where you want to be an adult, but you're nowhere near. Um, Go ahead, Marina. Well, I was just gonna say for me, I I find that the whole um, '70s inclusion and the fact that we're so immersed in '70s culture in such a short period of time, I think it goes to one of the central themes too. I mean, it's it's 1973. We're just in the middle of the sexual revolution. You know, we have a uh, I would say affluent family. I wouldn't even say middle class. That you know, they're sort of stuck in the middle of. You know, they're not out um, participating, like partaking in what's going on outside of their suburban neighborhood. And this is sort of their way of, you know, the key parties and what their kids are going through. It, it sort of seems to me like it's it's their way of being included in the changes that are going on around them, even though, you know, we see them in snippets. But so we know where they're there, but they're not really playing a part in their day to day lives. I, I don't know. For me, this was much more about less less about the um the individual characters and more about what was going on at the time with families and what was changing and i think the movie is a really great precursor to you know where we went into in the 80s and 90s with this change in the family dynamic and i think it marks a really good spot there well i think uh that's a good point too about the whole sexual revolution thing because i think you know you've got christina ricci's character but also, Sigourney Weaver's character is such a such an important part of this movie, and you know she really is kind of this uh, I don't know, just a, a powerful female figure who's you know controlling uh, you know Kevin Klein and and her husband, and you know just 
you know, she controls the situation. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Even like the, the whole Christina Ricci thing, like what the, the scene you were talking about at the, the dinner table, it almost reminded me of something like if, if that was a movie being made now, like Ellen Page would be the one in that role. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, which talking is, about blogging. Yeah. <laughs> blogging but, uh, about the current situation in Iraq. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just uh, coming out of Christina Ricci's mouth, I thought it was really a, a cool character and you know that was a funny scene for sure mm-hmm. well sigourney weaver's character is a fascinating because she well not only do, does she strike me as like the world's worst mom um play with the whip <laughs> um <laughs> after she watches her son blowing up his airplane with uh, with, with m80s or, or or fireworks but um yeah i guess she's i i guess a feminist symbol in that she's empowering herself sexually and divorcing herself of any household chores although she is sort of stuck with the two sons which would be elijah wood's character and the um sandy character i don't know what his the actor's name is because i don't think i've seen him in anything else but he's very good um but uh she's stuck alone with them but at the same time she sort of just ignores them and mm-hmm. does her thing with Kevin Klein or lady later on the uh, um, strapping young stud <laughs> character. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So she she is a an interesting character. I think she's probably for me watching all the characters in the in the film. I, I thought I found her actually to be the hardest to relate to in any way, shape, or form. I could relate to Kevin Klein's character. I could relate to Christina Ricci's character. Um, you know, I could even relate to Katie Holmes' character to some extent, but Sigourney Weaver is not, I don't think, a very likable character. She comes to almost represent the darker, nastier, sort of, I don't know, man-fearing side of feminism. Yeah, she she certainly put me off. I, You know, on the one hand, I'm saying, okay, well, you know, she's somewhat independent she's sort of doing her own thing doesn't care what anybody else thinks but at the same time it's like well she's not a kind of person i would ever want to associate with talk to no you know i wouldn't want her as my mother you know what sort of what sort of and it's funny that her she's got two sons no daughters to speak of i the dynamic just seems so weird to me i have i don't really know i think it would be different if she had a daughter to interact with as well for us to see sort of how they, their relationship sort of went because you don't really see her interacting with any women on a one-on-one. There's one scene actually it's a very good scene and every time the adults try to explain sexuality to the kids you get these ridiculously awkward scenes and there is actually a scene where Sigourney Weaver tries to tell Christina Ricci not to um, become sexually active so early or not to abuse her body and she it comes off as like such new age hippie bullshit it's it's like yeah. she's read it in some book and actually you see her around her bedside you see a lot of like these sort of uh trendy uh self-help books and stuff from the 70s and she's like your your body is your temple i, I don't recall the entire speech but it, it comes off and, and even christina ricci looks at her and and realizes just how useless that piece of info i mean it's there in spirit, what she's trying to say, but the words she actually utters. And that's a lot of the movie. The characters know what they want to do in spirit, but they can't find the right words or the right way to 
start um, their action. I mean, the awkwardness around the whole key party sequence in the movie is unbelievable because you get the sense that like no one wants to be there, but at the same time, oh, it's new and we have to keep up with the changing times and mm-hmm. yeah. and and we've got to even though they're probably ten or. 15 years older than the hippie generation, it's almost like, well, this is the way the world is going. And even though we're the adults, we have to actually keep up with the new trends of the kids. And that key party is so awkward. Everyone either has a revenge reason or some social awkward reason for doing it. It, it, Other than the hostess who's played by Juno's mom, Allison Janney, um, no one actually seems to be enjoying that party. Well, I think that's uh, <clears throat> an example of, I mean, one, the the fad of uh, of that. Like, it's almost like these are the, like you said, they're trying to keep up with a younger generation. And maybe even they're late to the party uh, on that whole thing. And it seems as though all of the characters are, they see a place where they're supposed to be. And they're trying to get to that place, but they're... Uh, kind of screwing themselves over in the process. So, you know, the at the key party, everyone's trying to be sexually open-minded, but they're all kind of wincing when they see their husband walk away with another woman, but they're going to stick to it when really, <clears throat> as you can see, when the one woman picks happens to pick her own husband's keys and they're fine with it and they just go home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They got out easy. So, I mean, you look at it's It's like that with practically everyone. I mean, Sigourney Weaver um, maybe is wanting to be somewhere else, but she's got these two kids to to take care of. Um, uh, Christina Ricci is wanting to be somewhere, uh, wanting to be a kid maybe, but she's got all of these uh, weird adult fantasies because of the the environment she lives in and the mother who wants to be young again but has to be uh mature and toby mcguire who wants to be the sleazebag who takes advantage of katie holmes when she's drunk but has to be the noble guy and kind of leaves the party um i think i think it's just everyone they all have urges that they're trying hard not to give into and maybe in some cases it's better that they don't, but it might not be completely true to who they are or, or what they really want. Um, so it's just all of these characters that are pretending to be something that they're not. Can we talk about the preacher character for a minute? Because that's, yeah, a, that's a really that's good exactly. example of the... Uh, there's only two scenes with that character, I believe, but he makes a fabulous impression. He is, again, one of these sort of relaxed free form almost like anarchist church uh minister and the one scene you the first scene you see him with joan allen um and you get the sense that at some point joan allen was probably some sort of literature major or whatever now she's sort of a confused mom uh whose kids are soon to be leaving the nest and uh she doesn't know what to do and she has this weird it's almost flirtatious scene with the minister and it's very awkward because they make a connection but you know he's a 
preacher, and I don't think she's completely on board with his religion thing. And then later, he's actually at the key party, and he says something incredibly awkward of, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, get closer to the sheep, but in the context of this sex exchange party and i think joan allen i think it's she says it as a joke or makes some comment about that and the preacher character has no idea where to go with that he's so like any sense of authority of that he would have not that he hasn't with joan allen but is gone and he's so awkward that he actually flees the (laughs) flees the party uh and it's just such a great example of someone who should know where they are and is just confused and and uncertain and wants to keep up with the where they perceive the times to be but really has no mooring or 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 compass to to figure out where they should be and it just creates everyone wants to be cutting edge and 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 think of themselves as uh incredibly open-minded but when you actually put it into practice it's actually an incredibly awkward stew and this movie captures that better than most that i can think of yeah i i this movie doesn't for me it didn't seem to look at the sexual revolution as a um <clears throat> at least in this specific point in time as as a uh, a good thing. good thing yeah <clears throat> um it just it just is played out like a, a fad and everyone is just being completely dishonest with who they are and trying to fall in line with this thing and it's just getting in the way of everything and you know you've got kevin klein's character using it as uh almost an excuse for his uh adultery with um sigourney weaver where he's trying to use this key party maybe to to come up with a a way out of this affair sort of thing um so uh, you know i that's one interesting thing is it's not like a celebration of 1973 i mean Mm -hmm. there's there's not really anything positive about 1973 in this movie aside from everyone's wearing awesome like wool knit shirts and hats (laughs) and some pretty Um, good interior decorating yeah but it, it's not to the point. It's still subtle. Like it, you, you could watch this movie, and and I, I think you could get um, away with watching it and not being entirely sure for the most part when yeah, it's set. I, I, I mean, I wasn't. It wasn't like in your face. I wasn't really thinking the whole time. Oh, this is the seventies. I mean, you kind of you got that feel, but it wasn't like there's some face. corduroy here and there, like brown corduroy <laughs> suits and. And but like it's not like the hairstyles are, you know, ridiculous. And there's like a, a guy at the party that's the disco guy. <laughs> I mean, it, it just is the backdrop, but it still plays a major uh, role. And it's just the that balancing of, of subtle kind of nods to that era. I think worked for me. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Ang Lee and and uh, company are are actually quite restrained when it comes to using like when we talk about crazy which goes crazy with the soundtrack uh selection in fact the soundtrack selection is the bulk of the film this movie actually resists i believe when um toby mcguire goes to meet 
Katie Holmes in in her New York apartment or her parents' New York apartment. There's a there's some music there. I don't recall the tune that it's playing, um, but I don't think there's any actual '70s music in it. In fact, <coughs> they use a almost naturalistic. Well, like I said, that that air instrument, air pipe, flute score is timeless. It's a timeless piece of music uh, yeah. that it doesn't evoke the 70s in any way shape or form and it provides a nice counterpoint to establishing the time and place yeah and i i was reading something earlier and they were talking about um the soundtrack and apparently it was produced with the idea of this 1970s style music but they didn't really have the budget to have anything more than just stuff that sounds like it so, the, like, looking down the track list, there's some stuff that you recognize, but nothing that st- really stands out. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't even really <clears throat> remember too much about the the soundtrack in terms of what songs are playing in the background. And when you think of a period movie like this, that's usually the mm-hmm. first thing that gets exploited. Um but it, um, going off in uh, another direction, uh, I really like the cinematography in the movie in that it's another thing that wasn't really exploited. It's it's pretty simple. And uh, like this is one of those movies that <clears throat> kind of like Little Children or, or Election um, or even the, I guess, well... It's not as easy to watch as the Todd Solon's, uh, or <laughs> it is happiness. It, it, Todd Solon's films are a little harder to digest, but this movie is uh, completely captures me, and, and I am completely into the the characters and everything, and nothing really drew me out of it. Like there's there's no fancy um, camera work or, or camera movement. Uh, it's a pretty basic uh, composition, and and. It's almost like the the stuff within the frame is it's what's interesting, not necessarily the the frame itself. Um, you know, like with the the ice shots and the ice cutaways and the very opening of the train. You know, the and uh, the sparks as it kind of like breaks all the ice going down the line and whatnot. So it doesn't get too, I guess, self indulgent with uh, direction either. Well, that's actually a good symbol, though, the the train shedding all of its ice. Because when you realize by the time the movie is over, the opening shot is actually moments before the movie ends. And it's a pretty heavy, you could say heavy-handed, but, I mean, it works so well with the film of um, something happens <laughs> to, you know, in, in this case, it's the, the, the sand, no, it's the Elijah Wood character dies that actually breaks all the ice off everyone and and the train moving forward with the fantastic four speech about family causing your problems and being the cure of your problems um and of course when all the ice is broken off um toby mcguire actually gets off the train um to to his surprise because i don't think he well, A, expected to be that late coming home because the train shuts down, and B, did not probably expect to see his whole family sitting there. Yeah, he probably at thought the, he was going to be in trouble at, or something. At the and, platform. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's another thing. This is not a cinematography thing, but 
I've seen the the film probably six or seven times, and the one thing you notice is at some point in the movie, every single character slips, like physically, like pratfall, like not um, Charlie Chaplin or, or or whatever, but everyone slips. In fact, the opening scene of Tobey Maguire getting off the plane at train rather at the beginning of the movie, there's just some guy gets off the train and practically he doesn't fall, but he almost wipes right out. But then you see. Every character over the course of the movie has some scene where they where they physically slip, whether it's Puddle, the, the, obviously when Joan Allen and, and Sigourney Weaver's husband are coming out, they're slipping down the... And, and what they're getting into is, is, is very representative of that. I, there's a lot of little touches. I mean, this thing was, for as effortless as and captivating it is, I mean, this you get the impression that this picture during the shooting and whatever was rigorously controlled uh, rigorously like like you said there's so much of the story is within the frame not not the camera whoop-de-doo the just how each shot is composed it's very um and i mean the criterion box captures what is really just a throwaway one second scene in the movie when elijah wood puts on that red coat and just walks out of the house and the window is covered in ice and you actually see it looks it, it is it a stoplight? Is it a rear window? Or the, as he leaves to, you know, slide around and dance in the uh, mm-hmm. in the frozen ground. Yeah, um, I think it's. Uh, I don't know. It totally surprised me just how much there. You know, like it, it's there's a lot of subtle things in the movie, but at the same time, it just plays out as a, you know, a pretty uh, engrossing drama. I think as well. One and, thing I, I liked a lot which uh, is very subtle and probably not really anything to anyone <clears throat> is I, I'm kind of, I love certain sounds. It's one of the reasons I watch cops so much. Cause I love the sound of handcuffs <laughs> closed. So if I'm ever arrested, that will be my one moment when I'm like, my hands are behind my back. I'm like, give me that sound. And that'll put a smile on my face. But when they're, uh, when Kevin Klein uses that ice, uh, the old-fashioned yeah. ice, uh, just the sound of maker. that, like crunching, and uh, him taking all these like shards of ice. I I like that a lot. Yeah, that's that was a good. Show. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny though. It's funny that you mentioned that though. I I remember the very first time that I saw the movie, and I you don't even make the painfully obvious move ice in the movie and that, but for some reason, I when you bring that up, I always remember that scene when he when he. Mm-hmm. opens the ice the first time yeah. so yeah. it is just a minor detail but it, it there's so many of those de- like uh again um elijah wood and christina ricci kissing in the bottom of the swimming pool again in a we'll pick on juno for a while juno-esque movie that would be saccharinely cute in in this movie it's two kids dwarfed by a large empty environment around them it's it's a it's a it's a metaphor it's a pretty scene and it's not intrusive or it doesn't even really call attention to itself it just plays out very naturally even the way the the gigantic these gigantic suburban homes seem to be nestled this is a pre this is not like a little children or a um edward scissorhands sort of overly kitschy looking subdivision this is like marina said they're very high end so these houses are almost like little islands in the middle of this endless forest like you don't even there's no sidewalks or anything 
in this in this neighborhood. And I, I like that sort of each house is an island in the middle, and you know even within the house they can't even come together, even when they're as isolated as they are. Everyone stays in their own rooms or is doing their own thing. That's the thing you'd never know that they were neighbors if they didn't say it because he, their houses are so separated yeah because of their uh the way the location is set up but yeah i, I like those kind of <clears throat> extreme close-ups and like massive sound cues uh like kind of like in uh requiem for a dream when they cut to the close-ups of like the shrink. needles and like coffee being poured or, or in hot fuzz when they do it, like they take that idea and just like almost parody it where it's like fingerprinting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love stuff like that. Just where the sound of that is completely blown up and, and, you know, I can almost imagine them rather than actually using the sound of a nice thing, like going to a construction site and recording like concrete being torn apart or something where it's like completely extreme. Well, there's there's another scene in the film where um, Elijah Wood gives his speech on molecules, which is one of the funniest high school speeches. Again, in in a different movie, that would come out as so showy, but in this movie, it's just it's sweetly naive, but absolutely highly intelligent. Like he's not an idiot. That's actually a very well reasoned and very mm-hmm. smart. And I think most adults that sit and watch that actually that gives them pause for thought but later in the film of course it's the same reason why he goes out in the ice storm because it's so cold he he pictures oh the world is not a dirty place when it's all been covered Mm -hmm. in ice so i can go out when it's clean and quiet and when you look at him wandering around in the dark um those scenes are so quiet and especially when he sees the power lines broken and he's standing there and he's just watching and i i don't think there's any noise on the soundtrack whatsoever except for that this is where jay is talking overly large sound cues the whipping as that thing as that thing breaks and the um the sort of everything is held still and then there's this wild motion just briefly as things are freed and of course in this at the end of the movie it's a positive thing for toby Maguire, not so positive for elijah wood as he and then immediately after this intense burst of sound, um, you just actually see him very quietly, like everything is silent again. Uh, it just, yeah, it was like it was almost like what just happened there. Like it, it wasn't like over, like over the top. Like it was just so simple and like subdued. Yeah, it's not like there was uh, <clears throat> hand animated electrical currents. <laughs> Like, you know, Return of the Living Dead stylers and going up his body and he's shaking. I was waiting <laughs> Weird for that. Weird science. Didn't the come, Highlander. So. The Highlander. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I miss nowadays is hand animated. Uh, either like when someone opens a uh, something that contains a spirit and the hand animated like smoke comes out or, or electrical currents or I, I want them to bring that back. Ang Lee should have jumped on that. But another example of like a close-up that really struck me was when he's on the diving board and his feet are like slipping around. Slipping. And yeah, I mean, that was just that scene was strong just because it's 
you know, so dangerous. <laughs> Get well, yeah, it was so tense because you're waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think the other thing that I really liked about this movie is that it just never quite went where I expected it to, you know? Like, when I first read the synopsis, I think it mentioned the uh, the, the key party or whatever, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be some weird sex kind of movie i don't know and and it is i was hoping (laughs) but like it is but it it doesn't play out like it just you know the the actual key party is so not what you would expect it to be you know and i think that's what was so memorable about this movie um i don't know any closing thoughts on uh, the ice storm not really (laughs) 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 well I, i i really liked it but I, it's a little too dark for me. So I think uh, the final scene is probably my favorite just because it gives me warm fuzzies. Right. As odd as it sounds. I don't know. I just, um, I thought it was an interesting look at family dynamics in the, I guess, mid-70s. But other than that, I didn't really take too much more from it. I've only seen it a couple of times. It's not really my favorite film. I mean, I can appreciate it, but it's a bit too dark for me. So do you think it has uh, relevance today still then, or do you think it's very much you know, about that time period? I think it does have relevance today, because, I mean, it really does show you where we've come from. I mean, this is really the beginning of where family is today. You know, everyone is disconnected. You all share one space, but nobody talks to each other. Yeah. And I, for me, that was really interesting to see where that came from, especially not having grown up in that era. Like, I grew up later than that, so I sort of caught the in-between. So it's interesting to see where that's come from. But aside from that, like I said, I mean, it's a really great film, but it's a bit too strong for me as far as emotions go. There's also uh, that scene now that you're talking about positive moments. The way they resolve Christina Ricci's sexual frustration or sexual awakening in the movie, it, the movie does actually end with her platonically and very warmly and very intimately just um, hugging Sandy. And, and there was no—I'm assuming there was no sexual activity. They just—they got undressed and just were comfortable with each other in bed uh with with, you know again both of these characters are ridiculously underage and yet the movie looks like it's gonna go always into this yeah you know christina ricci's gonna be um just hell on wheels or whatever but it's like it's gonna turn into a todd solens movie but then it doesn't (laughs) exactly and so there's that one two punch of toby Maguire, you know the family there and then her coming to grips with that however the movie does end actually with um with kevin klein complete i always find the the very final sequence of that movie shocking uh particularly because kevin klein is so good in the movie he just breaks down like he, at at this point yes uh, bad things happen to their neighbors and, and and it's just traumatic to even encounter what he encountered and all the pent-up stuff that at least is coming to some sort of resolution for the most part from his side of things. I think things are actually like they've come out of the, <laughs> the early seventies. Okay. Uh, but you know, it, it's almost 
he has this overwhelming moment at the end of the film and it it it, it always strikes a chord with me okay uh jay any final remarks i had something <clears throat> and then i lost uh lost track of it do you want to pause for a second <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I can't remember what i was gonna say but the um yeah i, I liked it a lot um it's just it's very watchable um and you know i i I didn't really uh, know much about it going in other than just the cast. So I was pleasantly surprised. And, uh, you know, I I like the whole uncomfortable uh, dramas. Yeah. Um, So it it was uh, right up my alley. Kudos to the little children comparison, something I never clicked in my mind. But that was the first movie club podcast that we did little children yeah. found its way in there and to be honest as a reflection of the 70s even though it was made in the 90s it would make a nice double bill those two films um yeah. together of sort of collectively where the united states thinks of the suburban side of itself without the sort of histrionics of american beauty or the archness of Todd Salant's. I, I, these these movies are grounded nicely in the middle. Oh, I remember now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> someone, you sent me a, a link to a uh, old friend of ours blog, and it had uh, <clears throat> an inter- interview, that interview b- between Errol Morris and Werner Herzog. And there is a quote that uh, comes from Errol Morris and I, I thought it was really well put because his early documentaries, he's usually accused of exploiting his subjects because everyone finds them funny uh, where, you know, he'll do things where he'll linger on people until it's uncomfortable and then they'll end up saying weird things. And, you know, it's a technique that I know Werner Herzog uses as well. And uh, I also think of Todd Solon's how everyone accuses him of hating his characters. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to exploit documentary subjects. It's another thing to exploit your own characters, but some people take offense to directors who hate on everyone in their movie, even if they are fictional. And, you know, I could see this movie getting into that territory as well, where there could be accusations that uh, Rick Moody or, or Ang Lee are just they just hate their characters and are just being nasty or whatever. And the way Errol Morris uh, defends his early documentaries is he says that he actually, in in fact, loved all of his subjects, loves all of his characters, and he thinks that when people are laughing at them, they're coming up with an excuse why they're laughing by blaming it on the director by saying that they're exploiting the characters and they're the ones that are making them look horrible. So to, to kind of, you know, explain why they might be laughing at an old man, you know, talking about God, uh, they just blame it on the director. And I, I think that this movie is a good example of, you know, something that might fall into that territory. But, I mean, I, I think the characters in this as you said, with the ending with Kevin Klein, kind of having that breakdown, he's 
uh, human. I mean, <laughs> maybe Sigourney Weaver's character, there's not that much there to to like. But, I mean, she's just, like everyone else in the movie as well, I think, just kind of dealing with this, her becoming old and, and like, clinging on to her, the, what all the young people are doing around her and, and trying to... It's almost like she's having a midlife crisis or something. She just, of all the characters in the film, more so than Joan Allen, uh, more so than Kevin Kline, uh, Sigourney Weaver's character just has the best wall. She has mm-hmm. the best yeah. face. So it makes her look cold. But you can see it by the self, all the self-help books scattered around her house by the fact that she doesn't even know what to do when Kevin Kline is getting intimate in in the mundane husband and wife deal with my problems thing when they're supposed to be having an affair she doesn't even know what to do with that so she goes out and runs errands Mm -hmm. i mean yeah she's as confused and frightened is that the performance or is that taking advantage of sigourney weaver's natural i don't personally think sigourney weaver has a huge range compared to some actresses but obviously the casting in that particular choice was well thought out or or very fortunate because yeah, that character does. You can look beyond the facade and and see it without being patted on the head or 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 like nothing in this movie. That's the one of the beauties of it is it's not condescending to you as the viewer, and it's not condescending. It's not condescending. I think the the movie is sad, and the subject material is sad, and the tone is melancholy, and 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 so forth. But I really think that the director loves these characters, and um, the author loves these characters, and the author actually finds redemptive power in every single one of these characters, uh, even if it's not necessarily on screen. Like yeah. there's a lot of things that you can reasonably fill in the blanks that happen off screen before the movie starts or after, because you only get a weekend. Um, and I think that's a rich aspect of a movie that allows you to do a lot of the work outside of the frame and outside of the the context of the the plot or story that you see. You can actually, even if you don't consciously do it, you you have this sort of emotional extrapolation where you can you can empathize where these characters are going to go or where they have been uh, outside of what you actually see in the movie. I think that's a rich film that can do that yeah it's just very easy for people i think to write off complex characters as just being assholes and and just saying you know what i just didn't like like i'm reminded recently i watched margot at the wedding and that movie was ripped to shreds apparently i i i know it didn't do too well it's a great film though yeah i i really liked it and you know the characters are some of them are annoying i mean uh but I think that's the point with some of them. But also, they're they're not just cartoons, like just annoying people that just walk around and be annoying. Like there's reasons behind everything they do, and you know, people just write stuff like that off very often as just you know, I just didn't like that person. Well, you know, why didn't you like them? I mean, look at what's why they're acting that way, or or. Is the purpose that they're supposed to be unlikable or did, you know, a whole movie can be written off just by someone, you know, not agreeing with the lifestyle of a character or something. Well, I think it comes down to like what you said earlier. I mean, it's it's how human 
do these characters appear to be? And if if they have something about them, if there's, you know, maybe they're assholes, but you can sense that there's, you know, pain beneath it or something, then it's like, yeah, I can, people like this exist. This is real, you know, but somebody's there just as a bully to, um, to be a villain or whatever, you know, then maybe it's not, you know, maybe it is a a two-dimensional character, but in the case of the ice storm, yeah, there, I think all the characters are very human. So having said that, I, the perfect movie mashup, how they have like Jason versus Freddie and, and like Ash versus Jason or Freddie or whatever (laughs) would be, uh, Sigourney Weaver's character in this film a romantic comedy with her and Rick Moranis' character from Ghostbusters. Them that on a be, date. That would, would be interesting. Be, uh, that would be perfect for me. With lots of handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> sure. All right. Well, um, I guess we're going to move on to the second film now. And um, Jay, you, you didn't get a chance to watch it. I didn't. Chose not to watch it, however you want to put it. Well, I, not, I, I'm sure everyone has. I just find it, I, I sometimes I'm stubborn when I have like a huge pile of stuff to, that I really want to get to. And there's certain movies that for some reason <clears throat> I just find it hard to, to get to. Yeah. There's got to be movies like that for everyone here. Oh, I mean, sure. when you sent the email out, said that while this movie gets rave reviews and um, people seem to love it and it's talked about in, in in certain circles and whatever, but I just can't bring myself to watch it. I can totally sympathize. I mean, you should watch it, and you're a jerk for not watching. It, <laughs> but I can totally. I, I have about half a dozen movies that are recommended highly from like my film friends as well as from just social circles or whatever that time and time again are pounded for me to watch it and i just i start to get very stubborn about them or there's something that i know about the movie that immediately endears me not to watch it so i can i can totally understand well here's here's an example i mean this movie actually came up (coughs) months ago before we even mentioned it to do on the this podcast and my girlfriend was dog sitting in Niagara on the Lake and I think she had seen it and the people she was dog sitting for had it in their collection and she really wanted to watch it. And when it comes to movie watching, you know, with people or with my girlfriend, I'm, I'm very selfish and self-centered. <laughs> so rather than agreeing to watch that, I made her watch Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you remember that movie. I love the smell of Dabney um, Coleman in the morning. <laughs> so, I mean, if... if that if, is a good movie, though. I got it, it is. So, you know, I chose Cloak and Dagger. <laughs> well, maybe we should do Cloak and Dagger next month. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, movie Club podcast. But, you know, I, I, it's that in combination with the fact that it wasn't readily available to me. Like, I am... If I had seen it at my regular video store, uh, haunts, <laughs> uh, used or something, I would have picked it up and watched it, but, um, I just didn't come across it and I, I had all these other things, uh, I was, I was checking out, but yeah. it's funny I, you say that though. Cause I see crazy, like I, I've almost bought crazy a dozen times because I keep seeing it in bins. You mentioned that you saw the ice storm mm-hmm. in bins all throughout the early 2000s. I saw crazy in the bins for a long time. And I'm like, oh man, 
I've heard so many good things about the movie. Why can't I pick it up for six bucks and put down the eight other movies that I've been picking out of the bin? Why not that one? I don't know, but uh, um, that's why I brought it up for the movie club podcast because it seemed to be the one way I would get over the hump to actually watch the movie. And I guess it matches up with The Ice Storm insofar that it is a family. It, it actually, you could open crazy and close crazy with the exact same Fantastic Four. Now, he would do it probably with the camera poking in and out of the comic book frames and it would be all very animated and, and flashy and glitzy. But it could open up with the same because it's, the, it's also about a family that tears itself apart when it's together, is alienated from itself, but at the same time keeps feeling that same magnetic force pulling it back together so so wait am i understanding that this is the first time you guys have all seen this yes marina you were ahead of the curve on this one holy crap so well you kind of were the one pushing for it and obviously you've seen it before so um why don't you kind of introduce it and tell us where you first saw it uh i saw this i guess about a year ago uh, it was shortly after the uh, the genies. I think that's what they are. They were won like every single award there possibly is, and it happened to be a blockbuster. And I'm like, oh, there's that stupid movie everybody keeps talking about. It, and I rented it. <laughs> it's the box. The I I it don't like the, the cover art. It reminds me of like a a skateboard video or something like where they try to make it look like a 70s sort of deal. And yeah, it, very psychedelic. And it, I think it's the acronym too. I like it just the title and that, I don't know. It something put actually they, they don't reveal what the acronym means until it, it's actually the very first closing credit of the film explains what that acronym means. And it, at one point it's goofy and perfect at the at the same time because it's the the five brothers and each one of them in order their initials oh yeah all begin with that so the the closing credits of the film actually have the names of the five brothers and then the names drop away and the title sort of assembles so you but of course the Patsy Cline song keeps playing over and over in the movie so so what's the name for the the Zed Zach he's the main character actually okay. sorry and Marina. why no no that's fine. <laughs> Don't remember. I think it's Igor or something. I, I, Yard, I Yardley? It, it, no, it's Ivan. Ivan, thank French you. Canadian. Oh, crazy with an I. Yvonne, crazy with a Y. Yvonne and in, in oh, e- French oh, Canadian. Okay. Yvonne or Ivan is yeah, Y V O N. So anyway. All right. So well, at, at this point, I'm gonna of... I'm gonna bow out and go because I. I don't want it. I'm gonna wa- watch this at some point. So. <laughs> well, you're not gonna watch it, but you're probably gonna listen to it. Oh, you mean watch the movie? I thought you you're going to listen to the podcast. Oh no, I never listen to any of our podcasts. <laughs> I should. How can I be so silly? But uh, yeah, I'm going to watch it at some point. So in like a year after I borrow it from someone and let it sit on my shelf for like six months. But it was fun, guys. Thanks. Take care. All right. Back to right. you, Marina. <laughs> um, so it's a story of well, a family, but particularly Zach. Um, I guess coming of age story, and. He, do I want to give away the fact that he thinks he's gay? Well, I mean, we're crazy. assuming everyone's watched it, right? I will yeah. have the spoiler warning at the beginning of the podcast, so. So, yeah, I, he basically, he, he's not quite sure if he's gay or not. It's sort of a coming out and coming of age story. And it takes place in 1970s Quebec. 
Right, yeah. So, I mean, it is a Canadian film. And, um, you know, I'm getting a little concerned that we're... Uh, we're picking a lot of Canadian films here, but uh, but it's kind of cool because I, I hope people do get a chance to at least track this one down. And this, I guess, was the Canadian Canada's entry to the Oscars for f- best foreign language film in 2005, I believe. That's right. So, um, but yeah, I, surprisingly, you know, and I always have this bias against Canadian films that I think. They're going to be little two old, little old ladies making tea. Yeah, in, it's just, in the Maritimes. Like it's just yeah, and and we talked a little bit about this with Roadkill last time, but uh, surprisingly, this I mean, with the exception of you know getting a, a Wayne Gretzky hockey game for Christmas, there wasn't too much overly Canadian in it. Yeah. Well, not only that, the movie is incredibly kinetic. Um, mm-hmm. Like where the ice storm is all repression and restraint and uh and and wind instruments this is glam rock and big patsy klein ballads and uh highly kinetic camera work uh with a very lot of animation fused in and a lot of the uh some people hate this some people love it i thought the filmmakers did a very good job with it the sort of the movie starts doing one thing and then it stops and then you realize the character was just dreaming or imagining that. Right. Um, so it has a lot of those sort of trickeries. And then there's a even more than the ice storm or maybe as much, but much more in your face in this one. There's a lot of iconic of the times imagery like the famous John Lennon um assassination cover of time magazine and uh mm-hmm. the, the album covers and t-shirts and various things in the background um in whatever quebec suburb it's in uh are, are just litter everything like there is a lot of david bowie and a lot of bruce lee and um just a lot of iconic 70s there's some say there's obviously the uh, a chunk of the movie takes place in the 60s and a chunk of the movie takes place in the 80s but the bulk of the movie is in the 70s yeah and i guess that's where it's a uh in direct contrast to the ice storm where they kind of toned down the uh the over the top 70s stuff this one is you know right out there with it and um and i was cool with that i mean i i kind of dig the the 70s vibe but i mean it's not that it was um yeah, I guess you know, and I see what Jay's saying about the the cover artwork and stuff. I mean, it makes it makes you think it's almost going to be like a parody of the seventies or something, which it's it's not. No, all, all the glitzy, glamorous and fancy camera work and and uh, you know some of the overly elaborate shots, um, they're all in service of the story. So the, the, it doesn't feel like. This is the filmmaker showing off. It's always in service of the story. So you can't... I mean, my personal preference is generally towards the ice storm mode. But, I mean, this movie is just such a purely entertaining movie that makes you feel like you have watched something generally, um, you know, good for you. <laughs> but, at the, but at the same time, it's it's just entertainment like it's the movie's two hours but it it never it feels like it's 20 minutes long it just is even when bad things are happening you have a smile on your face because the movie is so genial about the way it goes about itself i i mean 
I, I've got no complaints about the movie. I, I would. This is a great movie to put on for a crowd of people because I think everyone is going to get something out of it, and it, no one is yeah. overly condescended by it. I can see why it. There's a certain type of movie that generally wins awards, and like movies like There Will Be Blood or The Ice Storm are generally not one of them. They might have a passionate small crowd, but you know, Crazy is one that film lovers can get on board with, but the average average person that just wants to sit down and watch a good story can get on board with as well. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's really feel good. It doesn't really hurt anybody's feelings. It, I mean, it pushes its, I guess, its themes, but not, I don't know, it Just it's just a happy-go-lucky sort of movie. It's, like you said, it's a crowd pleaser. Well, you know, you put it in and everybody's happy. Any movie that can get away with having a character explain that footprints in the sand picture that like seemingly when I grew up, everyone had that hanging in their house. Anyone that, that can actually get an emotional response out of telling the story behind that and make it work has my yeah. respect to some degree because that should have fell flat on its face. But that, yeah. that I have smoked since I was two French actress <laughs> that, that gives that speech, the Tupperware lady, uh, um, does th- that that scene totally works uh, for me i think it worked for me exactly for that reason because of the fact that it was delivered in you know in in french and and i was you know reading the the subtitles and it, it didn't somehow it didn't um i don't know it just didn't jump out as being cheesy but at the same time i was thinking the same thing you were like doesn't everybody know what that story is or whatever you know but um well, I, I was going to say, I think it's interesting that, you know, we're looking at 1970s Quebec, but we're, and we're in a suburb that's obviously filled by pe- people of like mind, but you don't get a lot of French music, a lot of French culture in general. Well, you the dad always this... is singing that French tune. Yeah. Oh, you, you must hear that yeah. tune around eight times over the course of the movie. But... I mean, it's a great tune, but yeah, <laughs> but it's the only one. Yeah, no, no, you're right, though. The, the, the fascinating thing about Crazy is that it's a French-Canadian film that I think mm-hmm. someone in Akron, Ohio, could watch and relate to. It, it's kind of a neat way that they've pulled... I mean, even in Canada, Quebec is a niche part of Canada. The Quebec film industry doesn't even really coexist properly with the English Canada's film industry. Uh, the fact that they could make, uh, like, this is the type of movie that I generally think of when I think American cinema. Like, I think of something like Cameron Crowe's films or um, yeah. uh, or just the, the, the overall glitz and, and, and visual pizzazz. The, the showmanship of the movie reminds me very much of an American sort of feel-good family film. And the fact that it's Canadian and it's universal at the same time is i mean i think that's a strike in the film's favor mm-hmm. well and i think a lot has to do with the soundtrack which you know aside from the the french song that the dad sings and a couple other things here and there for the most part there's a lot of big 70s artists on the soundtrack and um you know it's that in some ways makes it a very universal film and, and i i really dug the soundtrack i, I mean i liked the scene when he he's singing, uh, you know, David Bowie was just such a good scene and um, sympathy for the devil when he when the church choir sings symphony yeah. sympathy for the devil. Um, 
but uh you know it's there is there are some darker elements to the movie i mean obviously the main character struggling with whether or not he's he's gay and you know his father disapproving and getting in fights and being you know excluded at school and whatnot i mean there's there's definitely um some some darker undertones there and i mean it's not uh you know there's sad moments as well i think um so there's that which um i don't know like do you guys it sounds like you guys both came away thinking that it was a pretty upbeat movie do you think that just the style kind of rolled over that stuff or i I think the style softened a lot of the film's moments That, that, that doesn't necessarily undercut the moments i mean i thought that the uh the actor that played his dad um who for the life of me kept reminding me of kevin spacey he he looks so <laughs> much like kevin spacey in that movie and when he's singing that song i'm i've never seen the bobby darren film that kevin spacey made but for some reason i had that playing in my mind but anyways the actor's name is michael cote i believe he is good he is a really good actor in fact his performance in crazy is better than kevin spacey's performance in american beauty um and watching him clash with his son despite all the glitz of the film that clash with the exception of the ending which i didn't like i thought the ending was a cheat but up until that point i found the relationship and it's funny because zach is played by three actors over the course of the film he's he's like six and then he's like 14 and then he's like 20 and they're all different actors playing him that's that that's always resonating i've got a father-son bias i i like father-son movies and to watch these the dad keep thinking he's turned a corner with his son he has he, he does no no way in hell does he want his son to be gay even though he's constantly singing patsy klein <laughs> the dad is um <laughs> over the course of the movie which i think is a stereotype that made it even into the police academy movies um but anyway uh he he refuses to accept the fact that his son is gay um and the son doesn't even know you know like he's just confused as whatever but there there's constant moments in the film where they have a truce the the, the dad thinks he's turned a corner and the son is just glad to have his dad paying attention to him or liking him right. um yeah. and i i thought even though the movie's very stylish a lot of the drama still comes through, particularly because there's no weak performances in the movie. Yeah, and I agree. For me, it was it's the family drama is what really makes this film really good, and it feels. And you're right, the performances are all good, but the emotion is definitely there. And the fact that it's the film is glitzy and pretty, and you've got this great soundtrack, is just an added bonus. I, I think the characters are really strong. And there's a really great family dynamic, which I really, which really appealed to me. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that how there was the three different actors and you know playing Zach at different ages. And you know, when the movie started, I kept thinking like this is going to be like a French Canadian version of a Christmas Story or whatever. You know, like that's what it felt <laughs> that, like. That actor, yeah. And uh, but then it totally morphs into something else, and it's um, yeah, I really liked that aspect of the film. And uh, there's one thing I should point out: in there was a fair bit of unpredictability to the film, despite the fact that it's a very straightforward story. I mean, like the a lot of the actual character arcs could have been spit out of the screenplay computer, 
but there's so many things that differentiate like the scene with when when he's young he has a bedwetting problem right mm-hmm. and there's uh, so he wets the bed one point and his mother sort of says you know don't worry you'll you'll get over it the mother obviously it's her favorite son or the one that she seems to spend the most time to because he's the most sensitive of the the sons and then later on they send him off to camp Uh, his dad in like a military thing is sending him off to grow you know to be away from his mother and and not keep having fairy like tendencies which he keeps saying um they get to the camp and he wets the bed at camp and instead of um belaboring that scene they they show like the the kids like dunking him in the water and then instantly you've transitioned to 10 years ahead like they don't linger on that you get the idea in what 20 seconds the movie does not feel the need to belabor or or draw out the point yeah and i guess that's kind of what you guys are saying i mean it kind of the feel good stuff just keeps rolling it along it doesn't you know bog down in these moments that are really dark and you know could potentially be upsetting or whatever it just kind of keeps moving but i i actually thought that one scene was kind of cheesy where you know there was that connection between him and his mother mother and uh you know when that was going on i thought it was a little cheesy but uh i liked the the style of how it was shot it was kind of cool um but uh, I wanted to actually ask what you guys thought of. There was sort of there was a lot of religious kind of themes running through the movie, and there's this weird subplot that I don't really, I don't, I never really quite, I didn't quite know what to make of it by the end of the movie, where, um, you know, the what is it like the friend of the family or whatever says that uh, he has this power to heal. Well, and, first off, Zach is born. The movie opens with Zach being born on Christmas in 1960. So right. he's a Christmas baby. Um, and so his mother keeps calling him her baby Jesus. And, and then he's still born. He's still they, born and comes back to born. life. So he's resurrected. Mm-hmm. He's actually resurrected twice over the course of the film. Right. And um, I guess the, the passion play would be uh, <laughs> the dad and the four brothers accidentally dropping him just after just after and and the scene is weirdly played for la in its own weird way it's yeah, played yeah. for last i mean the yeah. you see the scene at the beginning of the movie with the doctors it's actually a pretty traumatizing scene of the doctors resuscitating a 30 minute old infant and then they they play the doctor coming out but everything is fine and then immediately the dad like you know that's the most hoary cliche and like the book you know you dropped on your head as a kid (laughs) yet the movie throws that in there i mean obviously the mark that they think is the special i got it from that's the point where the kid landed you know what i mean okay that was my assumption so like however this this the the religious aspect is it's not heavy handed i mean I, i oddly enough that stereotype or whatever the the typecasting of the small town quebec overly religious slightly superstitious i i have that stereotype myself i don't know if jean-marc valet is playing into that stereotype exploiting it or having a piss at it you know or laughing at it but in my own mind from friends of mine that you know i have like a buddy of mine one of has has a a mother that's from acadia which is the french canadian portion of new brunswick it might as well be small town quebec and 
first of all, she looks exactly like the actress that plays his mom in the movie to the same mannerisms and everything. And the, with the little cross around her neck all the time, rubbing the cross. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then the footprints picture and that, that just, I have an experience that just made that, even though it's like really archetype or archetype or, you know, very, just like all the brothers are like the, the, the jock, the nerd, the, the rebel, you know, I mean, but the actors and the way the story's told, you it moves along gracefully enough. I, I, I the religious element. I mean, the whole Jerusalem wandering the desert, and then the mother splashing water on her face like she has some supernatural connection to her son. I I just sort of rolled with it. It didn't. It's heavy handed to the max. Yeah. But so much of this movie is so stylized and it it wants to inject you with adrenaline at all times so i just sort of rolled with it yeah and i was just gonna add that to me the way that i kind of saw the religious aspect as well is you sort of see the disconnect between the the parents and the children and the church and you sort of start to see the move from i sort of read it as the move of quebec in the 70s from this heavily Catholic-leaning, church-going group to a much more westernized... Secular? To, yeah. That sort of move, that shift. Well, because he, he... I mean, for the bulk of the middle part of the film, even though he supposedly is able to heal small cuts and burns and, <laughs> and things over the course of the movie, he, after the dunking in the in the camp uh, and he loses his mother's cross i mean again big heavy-handed symbol he's declares himself non-religious for basically until he takes off until he has the melt the big meltdown with his dad Uh, he he he's essentially um religion is just not a part of his life and I, i find the movie actually has that relationship with religion it it's kind of there and it comes up every now and again but it it ain't uh it's not rammed down your throat and it's it's actually yeah. not even that much of a motivator in the characters yeah. lives. It, it, it may be that might be one of the most realistic elements yes. of the movie in the sense that the religion is kind of there but and people go through the motions and people do believe but it's just not that big a part of their life either. I I, I thought that actually if I had to put my finger on what the most realistic element of the movie and the most non obvious broad type uh mm-hmm. that that would probably be the most subtlest point of the movie that's a that's a sharp one to pick that up marina well and, and it's interesting that you know he keeps going to church once a year to keep the family happy even though he doesn't believe in any of it and i mean how many of us that you know have grown up from parents that have this religious thing you know we do that you know it'll shut them up for another year great i'll sit in church for three hours yeah and i guess you know I I kind of agree that it seems like some of that stuff is being played for laughs, and I mean especially the the church scene where the they're all singing and the the guys he floating up, up and into the, yeah, like into then the I was like oh, okay okay I see where you're going, but then you know at the end when he does go he has his you know big awakening or whatever and he goes to Jerusalem and all that I was kind of like oh okay so but it is kind of important or something I don't know I guess I just. It was that's a fascinating two edged sword, though, because he does he go he he says it even in the voiceover that he kind he kind of goes as a side stop for um 
his mom because his mom has a thing for Jerusalem. Right. Um, to, but but his real reason is is that he is going to be away from the family to actually see and he he does this thing over the course of the movie which is kind of realistic at one point when he wants something he he doesn't step on any of the cracks on the sidewalk and he he sort of holds his breath underwater when he's a very young kid but later on he he runs the red light in the motorcycle saying i'll cure my asthma or i won't be gay if because the asthma seems to be the another metaphor for his homosexuality the puffer right um like he gives it up when he's with the when he's with the girl for the long time, but then he, he has to take it back during the wedding and get right, right. anyways, lots of, if, if, if heavy handed symbols irk you, you crazy may drive you into a, into a fit. But, um, the Jerusalem thing, he actually goes to discover and, and, and that's, an, that's the last challenge that he gives himself. He, he has this walk earlier in the movie in the middle of the winter. He has this, can I get home? walking in the middle of a blizzard and and the, in jerusalem he goes to the gay the gay bar and he's at the gay bar and and has the honest to goodness gay sex for the first time and then he does this desert walk um as another test because he kind of the movie walks the line kind of like the ice storm with the gay angle because he kind of has some impulse towards it, but I mean, he's not really 100% gay in the movie. You just get the sense that he's, he's sexually attracted to women and men, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I mean, the scenes where he has sex with his girlfriend are, are not, um, you know, like the fake wife to hide your sexuality. I mean, he's legitimately passionate for the girl as well. So, yeah. uh, um, I just don't think, like you said, the, the sort of traditional family, and the nuclear sort of uh, philosophy or whatever, like unconscious way that the family should be, the way the mom and the dad think that the family should be, uh, he's sort of the modern equivalent. And he's going, his character more than any of the characters in Crazy feels like he could belong to some extent in, in the ice storm. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess... I don't know that I have too much else to say about crazy. It, it, uh, I mean, I thought it was, it was good. It was, uh, definitely not what I was expecting, which is always which a pleasant. Is, yeah, absolutely. I, I must admit, I, I knew the movie would be musically driven because that was the one element I always heard about the movie is that it's got a great soundtrack and it, it has a very astute, it's using very iconic songs, but it uses them in such a great, way like it uses the cure song during the wedding dance and it and and uh um major tom is used fantastically yeah. and, i mean these are iconic uh this is obviously sympathy uh sympathy for the devil is about as iconic of a rock song as you can get um and and they use white rabbit in there twice uh including the french version yeah including a french version which i didn't think existed but um yeah the movie still surprised me. The only thing, uh, the one major criticism I have at the end, I mean, it ended the way I wanted it to end and I felt happy. I just felt that the, 
it was almost like you know in movies when uh, characters do the uh, the slow clap <laughs> right. you know it, it one person claps and then a couple other people clap and that never ever happens in the real world and it feels so fake and every time i see the slow clap in a movie i just want to roll my eyes and <laughs> puke and i felt that the dad shaking hands and hugging all of the sons at the end until he gets to zach because they've been fighting about how zach should live his life and yada 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 um that was the equivalent of the sl- I, they just i know the movie plays everything broad and so that everyone can relate to the movie i just felt that they did achieve some really good things over the course of the movie and that ending was the slow clap for me and then not only that they had the chip truck thing which worked at the beginning of the movie for me but the sort of end scene with the dad and the son having potato ch- yeah. I, I, it was kind of like beaches i just wanted to kick the movie <laughs> uh yeah but uh you know I, I yeah i think there's there's definitely some uh some criticisms that you can make there but uh, you know all that said i think it is a uh, Again, I hate to say this, but for a Canadian movie, it is, I think, very good uh, and very something that anyone can get into. So, Yeah, I, I watched it twice. <laughs> there you go. I, I liked it enough to, to sit down and, and, and watch it twice within the span of three weeks. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's a movie that I would, I would very much jump on the recommendation bandwagon. Uh, it's not a perfect movie, but, I mean, in a way, it's... It's a heck of a lot more accessible movie than something like The Ice Storm, like you said. It's it's a it's a great comfort movie uh, in its own way, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. I, I wish there were more of these broad movies that don't make me sick. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> broad movies that are you know n- not too deep. I mean, they're fun to watch, and they do have universal themes in that, but there's not a lot, like you said, there's not a lot to really dig into like we could with The Ice Storm with this movie. It's all, it wears everything on its sleeve, so there's not a lot of analysis you can do with this movie, and the emotions are very obviously cued, and, you know, cued very well with the music and and, and so forth, Um, but to be honest, for that type of movie, I wish there were more that were done with the care and quality and and little details. Like, I loved the ironed toast. I'd never seen that before, <laughs> but I'm I wanted to go and a... make iron toast after the movie. That was like, I, I guarantee you that, you know, this is the writers, not the director, but one of the, he, the co-writers, I think it's his basically autobiography to oh, some okay. extent. But you know that that detail is not the Juno hamburger phone made up for the movie. No. We're picking on Juno again. But that movie was a real detail. And it, and it isn't tacky in the movie, and it's not even overly called attention. She does have her big emotional breakdown with the toast ironing, which, again, was a little bit much. But I just like the idea of someone making toast with an iron. I just think that was a great detail. Well, I saw, I just, I'm assuming, I don't know, maybe somebody out there can email us and tell us, but I'm assuming this is a, some sort of French-Canadian thing. Like I, I, I would... I would believe that. It's the same thing. Well, the one thing that I know for a fact, this one family where the, where the mom is French-Canadian, I know that they do the, uh, they save the bacon fat and rub the, use the bacon fat as like butter okay. on toast. And there's a point in the movie where the dad uh, says, all right, who's the pig that that used up the last of my 
lard for the toast. Right. Like, yeah. so, that that detail, I, I I at least understood that detail or whatever. And that I, that's a I'm sure a French Canadian. That's the uh, Vegemite of. Uh, <laughs> Of Quebec, right? <laughs> or maybe even small town Ontario. I don't know, but I, I, my family didn't do that. But I know, I, I, I know examples of that. Um, yeah, and and to be honest, the performances, especially Zach and the mom and the dad, are are top notch. Uh, particularly because the mom and the dad look like real people. Uh, everyone looks like real people in the movie, and. Uh, usually you don't get those kind of character actors unless you're in Britain. <laughs> British, the British seem to manufacture these things out of the woodwork, but I found they felt like they felt like a married couple. Um, yeah, it was very convincing. No, definitely. And, and, and for as light and family friendly uh, as it is, they do manage to have a uh, a sort of want 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 anal sex conversation between <laughs> the husband and wife, and that was it was well done in a way because. The guy is sort of the hero and sort of goofy and comedic, but ultimately emotional at the same time. It, they, they do strike a good balance with the dad character. Who I think you could argue the dad character is the main character in the film. I mean, it's narrated and everything by Zach and, and told from his birth you know, on up. But to be honest, I thought the dad character was really... It's like The Simpsons started off with Bart ostensibly being the main character but ultimately homer is the main character in the simpsons i found that actually crazy is a lot like the simpsons if you look at it it's sort of that broad iconic funny detail driven movie um and uh yeah okay well uh marina do you have any uh sort of closing comments on crazy see it now (laughs) all right well uh i guess we're gonna end things off here with um we gotta tell people what we're doing for the next episode and apparently andrew didn't didn't make it to the uh, his internet connection never kicked in i guess yeah yeah but uh okay so the winner for the uh this the next month's poll was shortcuts um by robert altman Yes, so um, so that that's in there, and we we talked about it, and it looks like one of the suggestions from one of our listeners, Drew, wanted us to do I Heart Huckabees, and we thought that that would probably work well with it, and um, might might make for an interesting conversation. What say you, Marina? I say I've never seen either, so I'm good for it. Oh, sweet! I mean, at first I was tempted. Just because I love the movie and it's a controversial movie because as many people love it as hate it, I was tempted to say Magnolia to go with shortcuts. But, oh, those movies are so similar that um, <laughs> um, and, and there was a part of me that said, hey, let's put Jindabyne with shortcuts because Jindabyne is based on a story that forms one of the threads within shortcuts. But then nah, nah, it's too it's mm, too close. Okay. I Heard Huckabees is a weird movie and I think it. It's a good one, actually. A good suggestion. It it bears looking at. Yeah, again, it, it, it's definitely a movie I've been meaning to revisit because I kind of was I was disappointed when I first saw it, but um, yeah, for sure. I, I don't know. I would have liked to talk about Magnolia too, but I I don't know if it is very. I haven't seen Shortcuts, so if it's very similar, it's then scary <laughs> similar. In fact, there's a lot, number of cast crossovers. And, oh, okay, and the certain scene from magnolia that everyone talks about is 
sort of an equivalent in, in shortcuts. So uh, yeah, they're they're pretty much one's a remake. P.T. Anderson is a gigantic Robert Altman fan. I think he ghost directed a Prairie Home Companion. Uh, <laughs> he literally he he was hired oh, really? as an insurance bond in mm-hmm. case Robert Altman croaked in the middle of making a Prairie Home <laughs> Companion. So and Robert Altman was frail enough that uh, P.T. Anderson got to work with his mentor to on that movie so those movies are are too similar but right. I, I i hope i'm sure we'll enter into the i love i heart huckabees i hope someone hates it so we can really get into it <laughs> okay um so and yeah as for the episode following that we'll have uh some some choices we'll uh recycle on the poll for next month and then we'll have a few new ones up there too to, to vote on um, of course, uh, feel free to jump in on the uh, the comments for this episode. Let us know what you thought. Uh, you know, the the conversation doesn't stop here. We want to hear what you guys have to uh, have to say, and um, you know, keep uh, suggestions rolling in for for future episodes as well. Um, so yeah, just visit uh, www.movieclubpodcast.com, and um, I guess that's about it. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so uh, we'll see you next month here on the Movie Club Podcast. <laughs>